So, Doug, I got a joke for you. All right, let's hear it. Knock, knock. Who's there? RG3. RG3 who? RG3 and 10. <laughs> That's pretty good. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of The Yes Men. I am Lou DiPietro. This week, to my right... Yeah, is, we're switching things up a little bit. ...is Doug Williams. It's a little holiday switcheroo for you. Uh, and we are The Yes Men, and we're back with another great episode of Lovin'. And uh, at the top, we made a little bit of a joke about RG3 there, but uh, things not going so well in Washington, it seems, these days. Reports uh, breaking on Wednesday morning that Kirk Cousins is now going to be the starting quarterback for the Washington Redskins as they look to continue what one can only call a horrendous tailspin this season, currently sitting at 3-10 and 10, and not really going anywhere and not even being able to cash in on a high draft pick because the Rams have it. Yeah, I, I was just saying to you, Lou, before the show how I kind of wish two things would go away. First of all, I, I'm so sick of Nick Saban being in the news all the time. Uh, you know, I feel for the guy in one way. I think it was a little unfair that people were calling for his job. And, yes, people were calling for his job after he made a, you know one mistake of kicking a field goal. If he makes that field goal, he's a genius. But, you know, they happen to miss it. I Though in most other ways, I'm very sick of him. It seems like uh, every few years he's greedy enough to look for another deal. It's as if he can't be happy in one place. Um, I, I'm looking at this as an old-fashioned kind of why just not stay at Alabama. You're winning there. You, you know, you're one win away from winning the national championship, I think, this year. Why not just stay there? And in terms of the Redskins, Lou, they're just a, an abomination of a franchise, and there are about five of them right now in the NFL that these play, these franchises have just – you know, are so far away from competition if one thing doesn't work. And that one thing this year was was RG3 for the Redskins. He hasn't been healthy. He hasn't been right. And, you know, we're just going to have to see if he can pull it together because we don't know right now if he's going to be a starting quarterback for the future. Yeah, I mean, his, his injury notwithstanding, it took a while for him to get back. And he may not have been 100% when he took the field, but... You know, this is a team that struggled with the learning curve last year. And like I said, they, they won seven games in a row down the stretch to, to go 10-6 and six and win the division. Didn't happen this year. They're looking like they're going to lose seven in a row or more down the stretch to, to finish somewhere in the neighborhood of 6-10 and 10 at best at this point. <clears throat> it's it, I, I got to say, if I think if it were just about any other owner in football, Mike Shanahan would have been fired Monday morning. It's... A situation where he's going to have to eat $7 million, that being Dan Snyder and, and the brain trust, if, if they fire him because he's under contract for next year. But at this point, it's it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. Like he's talked about benching RG3. Now he's benching RG3. This is the guy they, they literally gave up the franchise. I mean, this was a trade that probably won't work out to be as epic as the, the one where the, the, the Cowboys fleeced Minnesota for Herschel Walker. But... I mean, the Rams got a lot of quality players, a few starters, and they still have what's looking like it's going to be a top-five draft pick next year coming coming out of the RG3 trade. And the Redskins have, what, a 13-15 and 15 record and, and, and a playoff appearance that they locked into, it seems like? I mean, that, that's, that's kind of sad. You know, just I don't mean to change the subject too much, but it's funny because there are a lot of coaches in the news always in sports and they're all well paid in the in you know the top 3 or 4 sports. They're all well paid uh, employees of these companies. And guys like Mike Woodson right now and Mike Shanahan. Do you feel bad for them? 
you know, now that the, there's these rumors mm-hmm. that maybe they might get fired, do we feel sorry for them? Or do we feel like the best thing for both of them, Woodson and Shanahan, would be just to get fired, find find an opportunity on another club because both of them have very good track records, but they're both in places where their franchises have kind of destroyed the next few years of competition. The Knicks don't have draft picks. Neither do the Redskins. The Redskins have are so above the salary cap. So there are certain things that just have put these franchises so behind. And you start to wonder, you know what? Maybe the best thing for them, and maybe the best thing for these coaches that are rumored to be fired, maybe they won't be fired, maybe they will be. What's the best thing for the team? Maybe the best thing for them is just to be fired and find an opportunity somewhere else. Yeah, and maybe it's best for the team for them to be fired and, and somewhere else. That's what happened last year. That's what, you know, Mikhail Prokhorov obviously thought with Avery Johnson. Fired him, you know, in December, a third of the way through the season, roughly. And the Nets still ended up okay. This year, I mean, you know, Jason Kidd's not going anywhere, but realistically, is he in over his head? Who knows? The Nets won last night. They had a complete team, so we can't really judge them yet, I guess. But when it comes to a guy like Woodson or a guy like Shanahan, I mean, maybe we think about them in in somewhat more lofty terms because they're a highly paid coach, public figure, whatever you want to put into it. I mean, bottom line is this. If yesnetwork.com goes downhill and my writing stinks or, you know, your on-camera presence or your writing stinks – no one cares. We get fired. Life goes on, right? Theoretically? Yeah. So why does it make guys like Woodson and Shanahan such a drama? Because they're high-paid public figures. It's something we can look at loftily and debate ad nauseum for, for days, weeks in the case of Mike Woodson, given that the Knicks are just still a pretty much roaring out-of-control brush fire. But at a certain point, isn't it just a debate? It, it, it kind of it feels like we've been talking about the same thing for so long. And, you know, firing a coach, a lot of times, and I think the coaches know this, they're not, like, clueless. Yeah. Coaches know that when they get fired, a lot of times it isn't actually about them. It's about the fact that if they change the coach, maybe the players will be like, oh, wow, i got to start playing for this new guy to impress him. It doesn't even – it has nothing to do with the coach himself. It's like if you bring in someone new, the fans will say, hey, they're trying to do something about this, and then the players might play harder. It has right. nothing to do with Mike Woodson or Mike Shanahan themselves. Well, it's, it's, it's a case of what some people might call a little mail time. You know, they just – I don't want to say the players mail it in because you're never going to get a player to admit that they're tanking it or mailing it in or not playing as hard as they should. But there's a general malaise that sometimes comes along with that situation. I mean if – if you're at a job that just drains the life out of you, there's days where you just kind of sit there in your cube and mail it in and be like, uh, whatever, another day, right? I mean, that's the that's the basis of life. So, yes, when if, if that were to happen here, say, and our boss were to get, you know, removed and or replaced and someone comes in, you work a little harder to impress that new guy because you haven't earned his trust, respect to kind of – almost insulate yourself against having a couple of those mail-it-in days where you're not up to your you know 100%. Because when he sees that, he might think that's how you are. Right, and the new guy can be a total idiot. That's not, right. that's not what... Or the new guy can be the greatest thing since sliced bread. But right. either way, he doesn't know what you can do, and you don't know what he expects. So yes, in general, just as in life, there's probably a little bit of a 
hey, let's do a little bit better for the new guy kind of attitude when a coach gets fired and replaced. And I think in the Knicks case, I actually do think that they need to fire Mike Woodson. And and that's the thing. When I think of that, I'm, I feel bad for Mike Woodson because I know it's really not his fault. I think that this roster is just it, – it's not right. It's it's not a winning roster. Well, that's not Mike Woodson's fault, though. Right. So, But that's the thing. I know it's not his fault. Mm. And I'm they, re- say, they, I'm, I'm they saying, replaced Glenn Grunwald already. So but think about how happens? annoyed these fans must be. They want a change some of some kind. I mean, Carmelo Anthony, by the day, is probably leaning towards leaving, right. considering the press is attacking him in his locker after every game, being like, what is wrong with this team? And Carmelo, I think, looked at last year's team and was like, look at all these guys I have to lead. I have Kurt Thomas, Rasheed Wallace, and Jason Kidd. These guys were the leaders of the team while Carmelo was the best player. Now, Carmelo is the best player and supposed to be the leader at the same time. I don't think he's ready for that. It's really a mess, and I think when you look at a team like that, the coach is the figurehead, yes, and he's the kind of guy, Mike Woodson, that you can look at it, even though it's probably not true, and think maybe he's getting complacent. You know, I think last year's Knicks team, just to say it, I'm just going to flat out say it, last year's Knicks team was proof that even aging players that were once great somehow end up being better than slightly less aged players who weren't as great. There's a there's a curve that comes along with talent, I think, and, and this is proof of it, that, yes, Rasheed Wallace was hurt a little bit last year, well, a lot last year, really, wasn't himself, but Rasheed Wallace at 38 at 70% is still better than, say, I don't know, Andrea Bargnani at 30 at 100%. Like, there, there's, a, there's a learning curve there. He had those guys. He had Jason Kidd, who, as the season went on, looked more and more like he was done, but was still Jason Kidd. You know, he had Steve Novak, who is a one-trick pony, but that one trick was really pretty darn good. He had other players like that. Now he's got Amari Stoudemire, who by the day seems to deteriorate more and more to the point where he's going to fall off the face of the earth by the time his contract ends. He's got guys like Metal World Peace, who went from being a key defensive player of the year candidate cog starter on, like, championship-level teams to a guy that played five minutes of garbage time against the second-worst team in the conference last week against the Nets. This is a team that just isn't built well. The players they have are not what they used to be. And and Mike Woodson is the guy left holding the bag saying, I'm doing the best I can. The talent just isn't there. Do you think it's possible that NBA players, let's say, let's take the Knicks for an, as an example. NBA players show up and the first week of the season, let's say they go 0-5. They then realize just by looking around and, and they look at who they're playing with and they realize there's no chance we can beat the Pacers of the Heat. Even if we start playing better, it's just a means to an end. And even if we got to the finals, there's no way we could beat the you know, the Clippers or the Spurs or the Thunder. So do you think that it's possible that the lack of parity in the NBA is what is not motivating these players? It's why J.R. Smith seems to not really care. I mean, he hustles on the court, but does he really, really care? Does Amon Shumpert really, really care? Is the effort there from this team? I think it might have something to do with the lack of parity in the NBA, the lack of our – we don't have the ability in this league to say anybody could win. In reality, we have five teams that in, re- realistically could win, and everyone else doesn't even have a chance. Who's the fifth? I'm just, I'm just curious because I, I can think of four off the top of my head that were the final four a couple of years ago, and it's like, you know, everybody's like, okay, there's going to be Spurs versus Thunder and, you know, Heat versus Pacers in the, in the conference finals. Who's the fifth? 
I would put the Clippers in there. The Clippers? Okay. Yeah. Just because they have Doc Rivers winning kind of <laughs> attitude there with yeah. Chris Ball. And they do have a couple DeAndre of... DeAndre Jordan and Blake Gray- yeah. Griffin. Bonafide superstars. Right. So I think that that team has a shot. I would say they're in that top five. But it is that bothers me about the NBA is that you just don't know who else could possibly go in there. It's sort of almost like, and, and a, this is going to be a very bizarre parallel for me to draw, but it sort of almost reminds me a little bit of tennis. In that, if you look yeah, at men's, yeah, if you look at men's tennis right now, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, and a couple of years ago, obviously Roger Federer were clearly head and shoulders above the entirety of the rest of the men's ATP Tour roster. So when it came down to big tournaments and Grand Slams and things like that. Those three guys seemed like they were in the semifinals of every tournament because they were, because they were better than everyone. Now, does that lead into other guys saying, well, the semifinals are the best I'm going to do? Maybe not necessarily in that sport because it's individual. So you're one tweaked hamstring, one slick surface, one bad serving night away from upsetting Nadal or Djokovic or Federer and moving on. And there are guys who have won tournaments. Juan Martin Del Potro won the U.S. Open a couple of years ago. Andy Roddick broke through a little bit. Uh, Andy Murray in recent years has kind of become the, the, the fourth member, changing that from a, from a triad. So maybe not as much, but it's, it's a lot like that. And, yes, maybe even the players think there's two or three elite teams in the East. I don't even know if you could say there's three elite teams in the East right now. There's two and then a few that are floundering but might not be elite. And then after that, it's like, well, as long as we don't have to face the one or the two seed, we're going to move on. But once we get there, we're kind of screwed. And, and I think another reason why your comparison is so smart is I think if you're the 35th tennis player in the world, you're 35th ranked tennis player in the world, you get your money. That's kind of all you that matters. You get your money, yeah. You play a sport that you love, you get your money, and you go home. Don't you think that that's kind of how J.R. Smith feels right now? He won sixth man of the year last year. He got his contract, and now... He's looking uphill at the Pacers in the heat and realizing there's no shot we can compete with these guys. I'm going to cash my checks. I'm going to go home. Or Well, I don't think he goes home and hangs out a lot. I think he's out on the town a lot. Yeah, he's whatever. a man about town from, from what we But hear, I but. think I, if, we, if we're real about what athletes go through and what they're thinking, we have to think like they might be. And I think realistically there are two teams that might win the East. That's it. We know that already. Yeah, I, you know, the the thing about it is is that, like you said, too, in terms of, of fighting an uphill battle, if those two teams are 1-2 in the East, which, let's put it this way, we're a quarter of the way through the season, it's going to take a minor miracle for somebody to break through in that into that you know stratosphere, you've got to beat one and or both of them to win the East because they're not going to play each other till the finals. One and two will not play each other till the conference finals. So you're going to have to beat one and or both of them to to get to the NBA Finals. Right. Is there any team that realistically has a chance at winning a seven-game series against either one, let alone both? The only chance right now would be if Derrick Rose returns in the playoffs for the Bulls. Or maybe even, you know, with the Nets, we said it earlier in the year, you know, they beat Miami when they were whole. So maybe once the Nets get whole again, we can talk about that. But right now, no. And by the way, interesting story tonight is the fact that the Knicks and the Bulls are polar opposites. A team with a lot of talent that shows a lack of effort and a team without a lot of talent that is based on effort. Yep. And you know what's so funny is the Bulls That's will missing be in, its one key player, right. and that's why it's floundering. And the Bulls will be in the playoff picture because they play hard. So why do they have motivation, but the guys on the Knicks don't? Maybe it's because they know they're their one key player away from being dangerous. I mean, that 
Obviously, yeah, Derrick yeah. Rose isn't coming back this season, but you know, look what they did last year with the without Derrick Rose and with the heart and hustle and everything. I mean, they they took the Heat to a very tough series. Yes, they lost in five, but it was a very tough series, and they gutted out a seven gamer against the Nets. So they they know what they can do without their marquee player, and that's I think why they're maybe in that mode of we can do this no matter what. Yeah, it's why I love the Pacers and the Bulls because they're based on effort. So it's you're not going to find an easy game against either team, no. especially on their home courts. No, I agree. Uh, with, with all that said, let, let's move on to the next generation of guys who may show heart and effort. And and we, we, we're going to think about making a joke about the Heisman Trophy celebration at the top of the show because six guys have been invited to New York for this week's Heisman, you know, unveiling, which raise your hand out there if you don't think Jameis Winston is going to win the Heisman Trophy. And if you raise your hand, please send us a picture and email it to us because I need to get an email today. Yeah. Just there's no. The Heisman has lost a little bit of its flavor. It has. And you know what? It's one of those debates where people say, you know, does the MVP automatically have to be the best player on the best team or this or that? Jameis Winston is the best player on the best team in college football. I say best in that they're undefeated and they're the only one. I still think Alabama might be a better team. I still think Auburn's going to beat them in the national championship game. I still think Ohio State might actually be a better team. But Jameis Winston is, according to the numbers, the best player on the best team in college football as a redshirt freshman. Yeah, and he's the most dynamic player. He's the most fun to watch. And I just think, you know, the five other guys that were invited have to be, you know, in a room together somewhere being like, well, let's enjoy our trip to New York. We're all, you know, we're in second place together, everybody. And, I, I mean, mean, you know, let, let's uh, look at these guys. I mean, take out Jameis out of the equation. And there's a very real possibility. I don't know if A.J. McCarron would win the Heisman. I think he's kind of there as more like a lifetime achievement award. Guys won three national titles and was a second away from maybe playing for a fourth. So he might be there kind of on the lifetime achievement, you know, ballot. But Trey Mason had, I mean, look what he did to Missouri in the SEC championship game. And he had almost 1,000 yards in the last month of the season. He had a monster season, even more monster in the last few weeks. So he's, you know, he's got a very viable candidacy outside of Winston. Uh, Andre Williams from Boston College leading, leading the country in rushing. No one knows about him because BC's 7-5. and five. If you watch college football on Yes This Season, you know a lot about him because Boston College was on our network a few times with the ACC package. And he was kind of putting on a showcase in every one of those games as he did in pretty much every game this year. You know, McCarron, like I said, Johnny Manziel, you know, defending Heisman Trophy winner. So he's going to he didn't have any worse of a season than he did last year. He's kind of in that Tebow boat where he got the invite again and he probably wasn't going to win it anyway. But, you know, he's he's going to be there. Any one of those guys could realistically win the Heisman in a year where Jameis Winston isn't Jameis Winston. Yeah, Jameis Winston is going to win. I mean, I, I would be willing to stake my reputation on it. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know how much there is to talk about. The national championship is a much more entertaining idea to me because there's just a lot of interesting stories here. Auburn, first of all, the fact that they're here, I think a month ago we would have told you you were nuts if you thought that any other SEC team besides Alabama will be getting in there. And uh, we thought at the beginning of the year, maybe LSU could beat Alabama. Probably not. Maybe Texas A&M could beat Alabama again. In fact, it was Auburn. Obviously, everybody knows what ended up happening happening in that game. And then you have Florida State, weaker conference, but it looks to be the best. They look to be the best team in the country. They're the only undefeated team. Especially when it comes to college football. You can only play the teams on your schedule, and they beat them all, and they're the only one that beat them all. 
Yeah, so, college football you know, is just one of those sports that I know that after this season, it mm-hmm. looks like we're in for a little bit better of a path with in terms of a playoff. And if we're actually going to figure out who the best team in the country is, it's it's been a disaster for almost my whole lifetime in terms of every year there's an argument about it. And yep. it's just a waste of time and energy. You just want to know who the best is. And mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm happy with this year. I, I, I know that you, you think Ohio State kind of should be in there. Uh, I know you hate the BCS process as much as anybody. Uh, I, I think whoever wins the Ohio State-Alabama game should play whoever wins. I, I, I don't – I think it should be a plus one, a true plus one, and I always have, in the fact that instead of a four-team playoff per se, it's just the four bowl games and then the plus one game. Because Ohio State lost to a um, uh, pretty darn good Michigan State team in the Big Ten title game. Alabama lost on a last-second ridiculous miracle play to a team that's you know got a 50% chance of winning the national title in a month. Those two teams are really good. If Auburn beats Florida State, then, I mean, can't you see something happening like in 2003 when USC split the vote and won a share of the national title? Because the LSU, um, I think it was LSU, whoever was number two ended up winning the national championship. Yeah, I mean, we've seen in college football, it's one of those sports where sometimes anything can happen and sometimes games end up being exactly what you thought they would be. Right. Like the national championship last year, everyone thought Notre Dame was going to get blown out and Notre Dame and got, Notre blown Dame out. got blown out. It just depends on if that team is really, really the best. Right. So last year, Alabama was by far the best team. Absolutely. Notre Dame was not and didn't deserve – in, in terms of the quality of their football team to be in the national championship. But you also look back at last year and say Alabama would have blown out anybody they played in that game because they were just that good. Right. Is Florida State just that good? I don't know. In the last two weeks, all Auburn has done is drop 40-plus points and beat the team that's got the most vaunted defense in the history of college football and then drop 50 on a pretty good team and rush for 500-plus yards in the SEC championship game in a game that anybody would get up for. That's all I've done in the last two weeks. Just nothing special. So can they beat Florida State? Sure. Will they? Who knows? We'll find out in January. I think what we're going to find out is, obviously, Auburn is not a very sexy team. We've known that for a while. They don't have right. that you know, classic uh, Cam Newton, A.J. McCarron-type quarterback. They don't have... The big names on offense. They don't. I mean, Trey Mason isn't necessarily like the Cadillac Williams, Ronnie Brown era right, Auburn running exactly. Backs. But I think what we what we find out every year about SEC teams is that all around the board, even the guys who are standing on the sidelines doing nothing, are all so good that these these teams are all so much more well rounded and and deeper than teams in other conferences. So, yes, Jemias Winston is the best player and will be the best player in college football. But the best team usually comes out of the SEC. Yeah, the best team doesn't – or I should say the best player doesn't always win the national title. Last half a dozen Heisman Trophy winners can tell you that. Well, Lou, we've officially talked about college football on this podcast for the first time. And um, for a long time, too. And, and there's a lot of stuff up, actually. I have a commentary on the on the site about how the BCS is kind of fittingly ending in an era where – even if you played a four-team playoff this year, there's at least one team that deserves to be in it that's going to get left out. And then on the other side, we have a Niner with top BCS busters. So you want to relive the Boise State Statue of Liberty or Alabama coming in as an at-large and winning the national title a few years ago. You can go do that, too. Cool. So everybody, please uh, check out Lou's stuff on YesNetwork.com. On, on the other hand, Lou, uh, our 
our team here at the S Network, the Yankees, has yeah. had a very busy offseason. I was explaining to a few of my friends last night that, you know, Jack Curry always mentions this. The least favorite question of people in our line of work is, what do you do in the offseason? And it's actually been busier yes. in the offseason than it was during the regular season because you're checking Twitter all the time. I've gone to two movies, actually in theaters, two movies in the past three weeks. Both times I left the movie theater, the Yankees had signed somebody. Yep. It's just that's just kind of the way it's working. And it's been a very exciting offseason so far. They have signed Jacoby Ellsbury, Carlos Beltran, and Brian McCann. We knew about Ellsbury and McCann last time. We didn't know about Beltran. Beltran was one of those kind of it happened later. It happened right. Friday night. Um they you know, re-signed Corota as well. Yeah. To that extent, it's like, you know, if you want to count technically that I've had to do something for the website or check in or approve something from, you know, our, our night and weekend crew, I haven't had a day off in three weeks because something happens every day. That's that's what we do during the offseason. We actually work just as hard, if not harder, because unlike us knowing, hey, the Yankees are playing Team X today and Team Y this weekend, we have no clue when something's going to happen. And the offseason's kind of... I don't know, it's different than the regular season because things that aren't even true yet are important. Right. Rumors are Rumors. worth writing about. Who are the Yankees interested in? May, might someone trade for Brett Gardner? This, that, the other thing. And, and the winter meetings, as, as we tape this, the winter meetings are about 80% over. The, the Rule 5 draft is Thursday morning and everybody kind of gets out of Dodge. Uh, Yankees Hot Stove has been down there with uh, their third or four episodes Wednesday night and then they close it out Thursday. And then really, you know, baseball kind of goes into a lull for a few weeks around Christmas, New Year's time, simply because, you know, the winter meetings are over, so it's kind of a reset from the initial flurry. And there's just been so much going on in terms of movement everywhere, so many free agents. There's really only a couple of the big ones left out there. Shinsu Chu is still out there, which now that Detroit seems to have signed Rajai Davis to a two-year deal, kind of maybe takes them out of the running for him. So where he lands is, is going to be huge. Matt Garza is still out there. Matt Garza is still out there, as is Ubaldo Jimenez. And then the whole situation the with – closers are still out there, Benoit and uh, Balfour. Balfour. And the situation with Masahiro Tanaka in the posting system, wherever that gets cleared up is kind of still the big elephant in the room in terms of what's going to happen. But now it's – you know, the Yankees have – they have their team almost. I mean, yes, they don't know whether Alex Rodriguez is going to be suspended, not suspended, suspended for 50 games, 200 games, however. They don't necessarily know if Tanaka is going to be available to go out and get as a pitcher. But if they had to go to battle right now with the team they have, they've still got a pretty good team with or without a Yeah, the one hole that they definitely have is the bullpen. They need a lefty and a righty to complement yeah. that bullpen. Two proven guys. And I think that that – I mean, we don't have to tell Brian Cashman that. He knows that. Yeah. I did a reply all yesterday about how I actually think that re-signing Hiroki Kuroda was the smartest and most important move that the Yankees have made so far this offseason. I think tied with that would be Brian McCann. I understand people that think Brian McCann was a huge signing because it really was. I mean, you have a solid catcher that the Yankees haven't really had since Jorge Posada signed to a long-term contract who has a great swing and he's a lefty. So I understand that that's important. At the same time, the Yankees had like two proven starters. And one of them really struggled last year until yeah. they signed Hiroki Kuroda. Yeah. Kuroda has been their ace, you could argue, for the last two seasons. Now he's coming back. It was a huge re-signing. And, you know, somebody mentioned it on Twitter, and I forget who, so I can't give that beat writer if they happen to be listening proper credit. But somebody mentioned on Twitter shortly after the Kuroda thing became official. It was like, you know, he's been he's been the Yankees' best pitcher for the last two years, and next year projects to be just as good without 
you know, barring anything happening. What would someone have said three years ago if the Yankees right. gave him a three-year, $47 million contract? People would have thought Brian Cashman was insane. Right. Right? But he's been so good in the American League coming from the NL. He's defied all the odds. Right. He's been terrific. Absolutely. And he's – really, it was as if they signed a big-name starting pitcher even though people are probably like, oh, you know, they re-signed Crota. That's no big deal. But and, he was one of the best pitchers on the right. market. And even if he's not as good this year – and even if he flat out stinks this year, he's earned that one-year $16 million contract based on what he's done the last two years. I so it's kind of one of those weird things about baseball where it's like, you know, people might say, oh, they gave, you know, so-and-so X years for X million. What are they thinking? But if they did it on a series of one-year deals like that and the guy performs in every year, then it kind of all comes out in the wash, no? And going back to what I just said, I actually think, now that I think about it, I think Hiroki Kuroda was the best starting pitcher on the market. It's very – well, yeah, it's very possible because without – Who else is better? Without Tanaka in the mix, I mean, yeah, it's – It's better than Matt Garza. It's Garza, Jimenez. I mean, Bronson Arroyo's out there. There wasn't really a lot of top-flight pitching. And it, even Brian Cashman has said that, that it wasn't a good market to begin with. If you have an ERA under four for the Yankees in the AL with that short porch in right field at Yankee yeah. Stadium, you're doing something right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Phil Hughes and Ricky Nolasco to the Twins. Josh Johnson got the one-year flyer, you know, from San Diego – there's really there wasn't really an ace out there, and there might not have even been a number two out there outside of Corota. There are some though in the trade market, and I just uh, today I filmed a weekly top five should be up today, maybe tomorrow morning. Just about you know there are some really big names that are being shopped in the trade market, which I haven't really we haven't really talked about much. Uh, we've done a lot on free agency, but you never know with trades if you know yeah. what's going to be different. That's what usually happens a lot during the winter meetings, much like you know Mark Trumbo going to Arizona right. yesterday. That's really where all that kind of ramps up. The Phillies, for some reason, after uh, re-signing Chase Utley and doing all the things they've done, you know, re-signing Carlos Ruiz, now everything they've them. done offensively, and now they're like, oh yeah, by the way, our two best pitchers are on the market. That doesn't make any sense, but. Uh, Cole Hamels and Cliff Lee are apparently on the market. David Price is apparently on the market. Jeff Samarja. Uh, guys like Asdrubal Cabrera. Um, yeah. There's a lot of guys that are potentially going to be dealt. So don't forget about trades. That also might happen. We've heard a lot about Brandon Phillips yeah. and uh, Brett Gardner as well. Keep that in mind. And from as we tape now at about 2.30 Wednesday afternoon, it's there's 24 maybe more hours of the winter meetings craziness to go. And then, you know, we'll see what happens. And to illustrate Doug's point about what we do in the offseason, as I'm saying that, I just watched Doug pull out his phone and look at the Sports Center app real quick. Yep. Just to see if anything has happened in the 30 minutes we've been in the studio taping this podcast. It's legitimately like. That's what this offseason is like. If anybody else out there has this, the Sports Center app, they the big breaking news stories, they send you a little alert for it. I've been getting like three or four every single day. Yeah, it's been crazy. It's I'm, like I said. I've worked Saturdays, Sundays, had to do things. It's the off season is the off season in name only. Stuff happens, believe me, and yeah. it continues to happen. And like I said, there might be a little lull for the next couple weeks after the winter meetings wrap up on Thursday afternoon. That'll just give us time to talk about. That'll football. just give us time to talk about football and the Nets, who we barely even touched on. They they won Tuesday night, uh, beat the Celtics, which is a big game for KG. Pierce is back. Darren Williams came back. Jason Kidd threw his minutes limit out the window and said we need a win, and they got it. So really, realistically, all we can say about the Nets right now is they're starting to be whole. Let's wait a week or two, see how they do as a whole. They got a big game coming up tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow against the Clippers, it'll be on you know they'll be on TNT, and the national network audience will get to see hopefully the full Nets team 
and we'll see where they stand in a couple weeks. But right now, it's like, okay, this is this is where we're going to find out whether they're they're what we thought they would be or not. Darren Williams last night, clutch. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it just he came up clutch. I loved Jason Kidd. It was the, it was the first really big uh, coaching decision. I would say so far, besides the Lawrence Frank issue. To throw out that minutes limit. The Lawrence Frank thing had a little negative connotation to it. It was Mm -hmm. like, did they get in a fight or whatever? But him keeping Darren Williams on the floor kind of told me and should have told Nets fans out there everywhere that was like, okay, this guy really does want to win, and he's Mm -hmm. putting everything on the line. It made that game against the uh, under-500 Celtics team in December seem that much more important because he went for the win rather than going for the plan. And Paul Pierce coming off the bench Paul Pierce looked coming off really the bench. good. That looked like a, the, maybe the winning formula. You know what? Joe Johnson last year was kind of the, the de facto leader of the second unit. He would often start the second quarter with the reserves. And he did really well in that role. And I think Paul Pierce can do just as well because they're very similar players. Right. So especially with Pierce's veteran leadership, you got Johnson kind of being the ISO scorer in there with the starters. You put him on the floor, Pierce on the floor with Livingston, and Allen Anderson, who was – Almost perfect from the field last night, and you know a couple of bigs out there, and that could be a real or that unit could be a real force. Is it a little bit of a blow maybe to Pierce's ego that he's going to become a sixth man? Yes, maybe, but you know what? He knows what it's like and what it takes to win a ring, and that's why he was brought here. So, yeah, and I think that was his goal. I mean, they all talked about how badly they want to win a championship. Well, you knew how deep this team was. If you want to play for a team that has a chance, you might have to play on the bench. Might have to do that. Uh, speaking of the bench, one last thing I wanted to touch on, too, before we before we cut this episode off, is uh, Joe Torre, unanimously elected by the Veterans Committee to the Hall of Fame, along with Bobby Cox and Tony La Russa. That's a, uh, that's a metric ton of managerial wins going into Cooperstown next year. All well-deserved, absolutely, you know, obviously unanimously, um, the entire committee thought they were, they were slam dunks. We're going to have, uh, hopefully, and I say hopefully because it's about 90% confirmed, but Jack O'Connell, the secretary-treasurer of the Baseball Writers Association of America, on next week to talk about the Hall of Fame ballot coming up, the Tory uh, Cox-La Russa trio going into the hall and, and various other things. So that will hopefully bring some interesting insight into the uh, into the process by which guys like that got into the Hall of Fame. But uh, definitely want to look forward to that next week. Uh, it'll, yeah, it'll Jack's, a, Jack's an interesting guy. He's been covering baseball as a – beat writer for various newspapers and he does things with Yankee Universe and he's obviously a very high ranking official in the BBWAA. Very interesting, amazing and awesome guy to talk about baseball with from anything from 30 40 years ago till today. And you know, it's funny Lou. You, you, just as we hint that there might be a lull, little lull in sports coming up in the next few weeks, we hit you with that. It's like huge interview coming up. Bam, Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's like yes, man, in your face. And then the next couple weeks we'll be taping a little earlier than usual thanks to Christmas and New Year's Day. So I'm sure we'll have a lot of fun, spirited uh, happiness going on uh, on the yes men coming up in the next couple weeks. But uh, I guess you're just going to have to look forward to that because the clock on the wall tells me, Doug, that we are just about out of time for this untimed podcast. Yeah, well, yeah, let's, uh, let's wrap yeah, this thing up. Yeah, wrap it up. All right, kid. That is Doug Williams. I am Lou DiPietro. We are the Yes Men. Until next week, we bid you adieu, and we bid you farewell. Enjoy the music. Enjoy the music.